Open your Bibles with me to John's Gospel. The Gospel according to John, chapter 1. We'll start reading in verse 19. And there are extra Bibles available for you in the pews. If you're without one, you can find our sermon text on page 886. Why don't we stand together for the reading of God's Word. Hear the word of the Lord. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain... This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we need your help this morning if we are to see Jesus rightly and behold him fully in the word of truth. We need you to be our teacher and to open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. For those among us who are lost, please save them and shine in their hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. For those of us who are downcast, encourage with your mercies. For those who are scared, strengthen with your love. For those who are proud, humble with your grace. For those trapped in bitterness and anger, release with your saving might. We all need to see Christ this morning, so send your spirit now to reveal him to us. In Jesus' name, amen.
Well, in verse 19, we come to a place many of us have been waiting for. To this point in John's Gospel, we've been introduced to John the Baptist, now twice, as one who is a witness. Earlier in verse 6, we saw that John was a man sent from God. He came as a witness, it says, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Then just after the eternal Son of God became flesh, in verse 14, we're told that Again, that John bore witness about this particular son, crying out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. So twice now we've been introduced to John the Baptist. The only question leaving us hanging is, What exactly does this man say? What's he say about the light? If God sent him to be a witness, an eyewitness reporter, that we might believe in Jesus through his testimony, then what does he have to say that's so significant about this Jesus of Nazareth? Well, John answers that question for us in verse 19 when he says, This is the testimony of John. Now, at first glance, John the Baptist's testimony doesn't seem to be saying much at all. All we get in the next few verses is what he's not. Look, at with, look with me at verse, uh, in verse 19. It says, This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What, uh, what then? Are you Elijah? I am not, he said. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So at first glance, all, we, all he sa- has said is what he's not. He's not the Christ. He's not Elijah. He's not the prophet. His answers jar us a little bit. Do they not? Especially since we're so accustomed to making sure people know right off the bat who we are. We're uncomfortable with a big not written over our lives because we're... because because. Who we're not isn't very appealing to the world. Notice, however, that this is where John the Baptist's testimony begins. With who he is not. And he's quite okay with that. In fact, if you look back in verse 8 with me. Having this not written over his life was part of God's design and even sending him to begin with. As a witness about the light. He says there in verse 8, he was not the light. But he came to bear witness about the light. The whole of John the Baptist's ministry is characterized by who he is not and who the light is. Having this attitude means that John, at times, really didn't see the full significance even of his own ministry. He says he's not Elijah, but Jesus tells us in Matthew 11 that if you are willing to accept it, that John the Baptist was the Elijah to come. John really didn't even see the full significance of his own ministry. The purpose of John's existence is not that the people see him and know him and exalt him, but that the people see Jesus and what God does through Jesus. John's whole duty for coming and preaching and baptizing was to make it clear to others who he was not. 
And in doing so, he upholds before the eyes of others who Jesus is, the Son of God. In fact, in chapter 3, verses 29 and 30, it tells us that John's own joy was made complete in seeing Jesus increase while he decreased. What what drove John's gladness in life was seeing Jesus exalted while he, the messenger, faded into the background. We'll talk more about how that relates to our own pursuit of joy when we get to chapter 3. But I bring it up here to show you that what at first glance seems like he's saying nothing at all with, with these knots about his ministry is at second glance a very positive witness for Jesus Christ. Christ is seen more clearly when his messengers get out of the way and find their significance in who they're not and who Jesus is. This is not the pattern of the disciples' life. We were reading the other night as a family in Acts chapter 3 with, with the children where, where, where Peter and John heal the lame man and all the people are utterly astounded and they're all rushing together into Solomon's portico. How is it that Peter begins his testimony there? Is it, hear ye, hear ye, Apostle Paul, Apostle Peter here, and my sidekick John? No, they say, why do you stare at us as though by our power or piety we have made him walk? Just like John the Baptist, the big knot was written over the disciples' lives as well. Christ is seen more clearly when his messengers ensure that all they say and think of themselves is understood in relation to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The further we move away from viewing ourselves in relation to Jesus, the less we will make of him and the less people will see of him through our lives. But the nearer we are to to viewing ourselves in relation to Jesus, the more we will make of him as a church and the more others will see him through our lives. Testimony, And that's exactly what happens to the rest of the testimony of John the Baptist. It's in seeing who John the Baptist is not that the focus sharpens on Jesus when John actually tells us who he is. Namely, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So you want to know who I am? John is saying to the priests and Levites, you want to know who I am? You want to give an answer to the Pharisees who sent you out to see what I'm all about? Let me tell you who I am in relation to Jesus. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. It's in this part of John's testimony that we begin to see why any follower of Christ would want to fade into the background that Christ may be exalted. Jesus is so exalted in John the Baptist's heart and mind that he says in verse 27, I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. Another knot in John's life. I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. It points to the greatness of Jesus. In other words, do you think this baptism that I'm doing is something? Just wait till you see the Jewish man this baptism points to. I'm not even worthy to touch his dirty shoelaces. Only slaves removed sandals in John's day. And John is saying here that he's not even worthy to be Jesus' slave. 
That's how worthy Jesus is to John. If, if any prophet in Scripture had grounds to boast, it would be John the Baptist, right? Since he was the one that got to actually see and point out the long-awaited Messiah. But John's boast is in Christ alone. Jesus is so great that he says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. So what is it that he sees about Jesus' greatness that we need to see this morning? What is it that all the apostles saw about Jesus' great worth when they looked through the ministry of John the Baptist? What is it that we also need to see as well? We find our answer to that question when we take God's messenger at his word in verse 23 and look at the bigger picture of how his ministry fit into God's overall plan of salvation. John says he's the voice of one crying in the wilderness as the prophet Isaiah said. So, turn with me to Isaiah and let's see what's going on. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find Isaiah 40. We're going to turn to Isaiah 40. On page 599. And while you're turning there, let me just say that you might want to pretend for a minute that you've just taken a double shot of espresso. um, Because we're going to pack a lot in to a short amount of time. So, Dale, I know you don't like coffee. But it's pretend coffee this time, so you won't be able to taste it. And parents, you may want to use discretion on which children get espresso. So Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 5. Let me just tell you that up to this point in Isaiah, God has promised destruction for Judah and Jerusalem... Judah was his people. He had delivered them. He gave them a covenant to follow that promised judgment if they broke it. And Isaiah tells us that Israel's sins against the Lord are many. Their idolatry is so profuse that even the priesthood is participating in idolatry. Their rebellion is great in in preferring the strength of other nations to the strength of the Lord himself. And so God judges them by sending, him, sending them into captivity in Babylon. In many ways, Israel is right back where they began. Just like their time in Egypt, Israel again finds themselves held captive under foreign oppressors, just like before, left to perish in their sins. But... In Isaiah 40, the Lord comes with words of comfort to those in Israel who would listen to him. Okay? So, full of unmerited favor towards sinners, the Lord says this in verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins, which is another way of saying that her time of captivity is over. They've suffered enough. But the question remains, who would bring them out of this captivity still? Yeah, comfort, comfort, that's great. Who's going to bring us out? Right? How would they be delivered? 
Would it be by their own strength, their own power, their own goodness? No, verses 3 to 5 tell us that it would be only by God's personal intervention. So read those with me, verse, verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. He's the one coming to save. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Which is another way of saying, get ready for his appearing, Israel. Get ready for his appearing. Clear out the obstacles, especially your sin, that we, that anything, clear it out of the way that would keep you and others from enjoying God's salvation. He's on his way. God is using language here from the first exodus that we know about. To tell his people how he planned to save them again. The exodus, in other words, sets... The first exodus, in other words, sets the pattern for how the Lord speaks to his people throughout the rest of his dealings with them. Just as the Lord came to deliver Israel from her first captivity in Egypt in order to bring them through the wilderness into the promised land... The Lord was going to act the same way again. His promise to his people here in verses 3 to 4 is that he would bring them out of captivity through the wilderness to himself. And when he does this, it says in verse 5 that the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So we get a picture here that's likened to another exodus. A second exodus when God would rescue his people from their captivity and reveal his glory in saving them. Remember the first exodus? When God brought his people out of Egypt and split the Red Sea and destroyed Pharaoh's army in, in the waters, the scriptures describe that event as one in which God reveals his glory over Pharaoh in saving Israel for himself. They even sing about God's glory over Pharaoh in Exodus 15. God's glory always goes on display when he saves his people. But we must realize that the kind of exodus that Isaiah foresees in verses 3 to 5 is one that's far greater than what Israel experienced when they came out of Egypt. We know this because the promise says that the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. So even the exodus from Babylon isn't to be understood as an end in itself. No more than the first exodus from Egypt was, un- was to be understood as an end in itself. Just like the first exodus, this second exodus that Isaiah is talking about was to serve as another model, another type, another foreshadowing of a much greater deliverance that included the worldwide revelation of God's glory. And that's precisely what the rest of Isaiah's prophecy goes on to describe. Namely, a much greater exodus. A much greater rescue of God's people from captivity that culminates in the revelation of his glory among all flesh in the new heavens and the new earth. So when John the Baptist says, I am the voice crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, he's telling us that 
he's the forerunner of announcing this greater Exodus-like deliverance. He's announcing this greater deliverance of God's people. The revelation of his glory for all flesh to see. He's announcing that God's about to bring deliverance for his people like they've never seen before. Yes, God had already brought back Israel to their, to their homeland from Babylon. We know that from Ezra and Nehemiah and some of the minor prophets. But it also becomes really obvious that a mere return from Babylon and rebuilding of the temple could never really bring about true salvation. The nation of Israel still sat in their sins just in a different location, in Jerusalem instead of in Babylon. They were just as vulnerable to all kinds of enemies, including sin and death itself. When was God actually going to deliver them then? When would the world see God's glory revealed in the salvation of his people? All flesh. John is telling us that such a time for Israel's salvation has come, beginning with the testimony of John the Baptist. You say, wait a minute, I thought, I thought Isaiah had just said that God's greater deliverance was going to be associated with the worldwide revelation of his glory. Didn't Isaiah say all flesh will see his glory together? The answer is yes. But before God reveals his glory in the splendor of the new heaven and the new earth, God reveals his glory in the humiliation of his son to populate the new heavens and the new earth. Say that again. Before God reveals his glory in the splendor of the new heavens and the new earth, God reveals his glory in the humiliation of his son to populate the new heavens and the new earth. In other words, there's a people that he's chosen that are sitting in sin while the new heavens and the new earth sit out, sit out here in the future. And the only way to get them here, get these people here into the new heavens and the new earth to enjoy God's glory is for God to reveal his glory here in the cross of his own son. Why? Why does he have to do it that way? Because God is consistent in the way he promises to deliver his people throughout Scripture. And what we learn from the Exodus is that in order for God to deliver his people from captivity and bring them into his presence, there must first be the provision of a Passover lamb. No lamb would mean no blood. No no blood would mean no forgiveness of sins. No forgiveness of sins would mean no deliverance from death. The only way God's glory worked for your deliverance is if you stood under the protection of the Passover lamb and his blood. Otherwise, you would be cut off from the people. Exodus 12 to 13 tells us about this. Each household was to take an unblemished lamb and sacrifice that lamb, being sure not to break any of its bones. And they were to take the lamb's blood and paint it on the doorposts of their homes. And what this guaranteed was that when God passed through the land of Egypt to kill the firstborn, if he saw the, 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 the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, he would pass over that household. Meaning everyone under the protection of the lamb's blood would not suffer the plague of death. Number, in, in Numbers, in the book of Numbers, chapter 9, verse 13... Moses even goes a little further and tells us that not participating in the Passover lamb meant that you remained in your sins. The sin that leads to death. 
It's this Passover lamb in Exodus that then sets the pattern for the way God would deliver his people in a future day. The only difference in that future day is that if Isaiah promises a greater deliverance, a greater exodus for God's people, then it must be associated with a greater lamb. A greater Passover lamb. God's people needed a lamb that would not just deliver from the temporary plague of death, They needed a lamb that would deliver from the eternal plague of death under God's wrath. Especially if they're getting into the new heavens and the new earth. But what man man could ever provide such a lamb? If any lamb was to deliver from eternal death, it would have to be a lamb that actually took away sins and took them away forever. Otherwise, we'd remain under the curse of eternal death. In our sin, we'd all, all we would experience is God's wrath in hell, not his glory in the new heavens and the new earth. God's people needed a Passover lamb who truly delivers from eternal death, and that means a Passover lamb that also takes away sin. For the wages of sin is death. When John the Baptist says in verse 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world... He has in mind that greater lamb. He has in mind something far greater than what any Passover lamb before could ever achieve. In Jesus Christ, we see God's provision of the supreme Passover lamb who inaugurates our greater deliverance. Instead of deliverance from temporary death, those covered by the blood of Jesus are delivered from eternal death Because found in his blood is the forgiveness of sins which leads to eternal life. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Instead of deliverance from mere slavery in Egypt, those covered by the blood of Jesus find themselves freed from the tyranny of sin's power forever. As Paul says in Romans 6, sin... If you're in Christ, sin no longer has dominion over you, since you're not under law but under grace. Instead of making provision for Israel alone, God's provision in Christ extends to all peoples of the world, meaning his death is effective not only for Jews who believe, but also Gentiles who believe. Whether young or old, black, white, or brown, rich or poor, male or female, from noble birth background or cursed family history, God's provision in Christ extends to all who would believe in Him. And instead of providing lambs that stay dead every year, God provided a lamb that would rise from the dead, never to die again, such that all heaven and earth still sing to this day, worthy is the lamb who was slain, to receive honor and glory and blessing and might and wisdom. So there's no need for another Passover lamb to be sacrificed for us 
since Jesus' death fulfilled what every Passover lamb before him pointed to, namely God's final deliverance from the power of sin and death for all who place their faith in Jesus Christ. Some of you know the grip of sin. Some of you know it because you cannot get out of it. Some of you know it because you like it. You like being in the grips of sin. John is telling us here that this is why God sent his son to deliver you out of that grip of sin that leads to death and bring you into fellowship with God and eternal life with himself. So what is it that John sees about Jesus' greatness that we need to see this morning? John is telling us that part of the final revelation of God's glory before it manifests itself in the new heavens and the new earth is to be seen in his son whom he sent to save the world. And the way he reveals this glory by providing his son as the supreme Passover lamb for our ultimate is, is the way we see that glory in Christ is by seeing that his glory was revealed in, in the provision of the supreme Passover lamb, which delivers us from the power of death and sin. It's no wonder that John the Baptist says, Behold. It's kind of like uh, John the Apostle said in verse 14 that we have seen. His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. John the, John the Baptist says, Behold, I've, I've seen this same one. Behold, I've seen him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because the reason he can behold him is because when this Lamb is slain, there's nothing that stands between this people and getting them into the new heavens and the new earth. When this Lamb is slain, when Jesus Christ is slain and you're united to him, there's nothing sin included, that could stand in the way of you making it into the new heavens and the new earth. That's why he says, behold. Just like John the Apostle, John the Baptist saw Jesus' glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. It's no wonder he's content with having a big knot written over his life. In Jesus Christ, John sees the glory of God's provision for sinners. That though they deserve nothing but eternal death, in Christ sinners are enabled to come to God for eternal life. I wonder if you see Jesus morning like John saw Jesus. I don't mean that by physically, seeing him with your eyes, but spiritually. Jesus says at the end of this gospel, blessed are those who have not seen meaning have not seen with their eyes, yet who have believed. Blessed are them. You need not see with your physical eyes what John saw in order to believe. You need only to trust John's testimony about Jesus. John even says later in our, in our text that he saw the Spirit come from heaven and descend on Jesus like a dove. And it remained on Jesus just like God told him it would. He has seen and borne witness, it says, and still bears witness through this word. It's been written for you that this is the Son of God. So do you see Jesus' greatness this morning in the same way that John saw Jesus' greatness? Do you see Jesus' 
greatness this morning as God's glory revealed for your salvation, as God's provision for your deliverance from eternal death. Do you see him this way? Do you behold his glory with the eyes of faith such that you can say with the Apostle Peter, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now with your eyes, you believe in him. And you rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls, where we're going with the new heavens and the new earth. Do you see Jesus this way? I imagine that some of you don't. I don't always see Jesus that way. I don't always see Jesus very clearly. God has to open my eyes through the Word and the Spirit and through your encouragements and rebukes and exhortations and through the ministry and prayers of my wife that I might see Jesus for the all-sufficient Savior that he really is. He is God's glory revealed in perfect provision for Brett Rogers. He is God's glory revealed in perfect provision for you. He is my Passover lamb whose blood takes away my sin and delivers me from eternal death. I need various means of grace in my life, like devotion to the Word and prayer and the body of Christ to continue pointing me to this Savior. And even this supper that we celebrate today is meant to point you to Him as well. To remind you of God's perfect provision in Christ. Not a kind of reminder that just kind of ends with kind of a mental assent to the facts about God's provision of Jesus, but, but a kind of remembrance, a kind of reminder that, that actually transforms you, that actually moves your affections for this Lamb and for all of the others He has bought. So as we enter a time of celebrating the person and work of Christ in the Lord's Supper today, let me encourage you just to evaluate how Jesus' how death as our Passover lamb is truly affecting you, is truly affecting your life. We saw how it affected John the Baptist's life. John couldn't help but keep Jesus front and center with everything that he did while himself, while he faded into the background. His, dis- his disposition towards serving the Lord was not one of complaint for getting the short end of the glory stick, but one, of the, but one of utmost humility, born out of beholding God's glorious salvation in, tri- in Christ, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And humility isn't the only thing that the New Testament writers pull out of Jesus as, a sac- as the Passover Lamb. The New Testament isn't shy of giving other examples of seeing how Jesus, as our Passover lamb, ought to affect us. For example, Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 5 that since Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, we, that looking, as we look back on that sacrifice, we are to be motivated to remain vigilant in the fight against sin and against any temptation to grow tolerant with the sins from which we've been delivered. That's what he says. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says that Christ, our Passover lamb, means that our bodies no longer belong to ourselves, but instead to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is to determine what we do with our eyes, and what we do with our hands, and what we do with our feet, and what we do with our hearts, and what we do with our mouths in bringing God glory. That's how Paul is applying the Passover lamb. Jesus, our Passover lamb. Paul also, uh, if, we put, if you pull together like uh, Romans 6, 7, and 8, and Philippians 4, you pull those together, Paul's basically encouraging us that if God has made provision for your greatest need meaning deliverance from death by the forgiveness of your sins, if God has made that provision by giving the Passover lamb, then he will surely meet all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So we need not worry. Uh, Peter. Peter exhorts us in chapter 1 of his first letter, verse 19. Peter exhorts us to conduct ourselves... In fear, while we wait for the new heaven and earth, I think Wes preached on this a while back, we're supposed to conduct ourselves in fear while we wait for the new heaven and new earth, and he bases his exhortation on the fact that we were ransomed from empty practices with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. So that's another way the New Testament writers apply Or if we take John, when he writes the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation would be this way, not, not that way. <clears throat> when, he, when, he, when he writes Revelation, uh, so know, knowing that God gave us his son as a lamb to deliver us from eternal death means, for John, in Revelation, that we need not fear death. We need not fear death. That we need not fear physical death. Revelation 7 gives us a picture that when the tribulations of life bring about death for those who've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, whenever death takes them out of the world, it says that God then shelters them with His presence. Okay? It says these saints who've washed their clothes in the blood of the Lamb shall, no, shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb is in the midst of the throne. The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to the springs of living water. So whatever tribulation comes our way, Christ, our Passover lamb, ensures that such tribulation can only end with glory protected by the presence of the lamb. So what is physical death in this life? If you get that, right? So these are ways, the New Testament writers, some of the ways, there's more, are bringing out how we apply the fact that Jesus has died as our Passover lamb. The fact that God has made provision in Christ for our deliverance. So, when you come to the supper this morning, think about some of these things. Think about some of these things and evaluate where you're at with the Lord. 
Beholding Jesus clearly as God's provision affects every sphere of our lives. If you're having a hard time seeing Jesus this morning, open the Word and let God tell you more about Him. Cry out to the Lord to open your eyes to see Christ's beauty again. Find someone near to you, today even, and and ask them, somebody that sees Christ for themselves and has benefited from His grace, ask them to preach Christ to you again. Come and sit down with us after the service that we might discuss Jesus with you and seek God's help together. And then lay hold of this time of the supper. Lay hold of this time in celebrating the supper together, knowing that it too is God's gift for you. It too is God's provision to you this morning in helping you to remember Christ, God's Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that uh, apart from your spirit, these words from scripture will just fall flat and have no effect on our lives. So I pray that he would come, that you would fill us with the spirit that we might understand Christ more clearly and see him more fully as the one who's taken our place, the one who's taken away our sin. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.